Hello, my name is Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today we're talking about Lizzie Borden, specifically the director of Born in Flames. No, we're not talking about the axe murderer or anything like that. She well, is known for Born in Flames. And a couple of other movies, but Born in Flames is really the one movie on which her reputation rests. The other films she made um, are either kind of under the radar or were brutally compromised. And she hasn't been able to make a feature film since the 90s. But Born in Flames is a movie that has recently... I would say recently uh, come into more prominence. It's mm-hmm. been sort of reclaimed as a radical feminist classic, particularly here in the Trump era. And like, it's always been around. It's gotten DV releases, but I think right now is when it's in the conversation, like you said, more than it ever has been before. I mean, it's a movie that is an intersectional feminist film mm-hmm. about race and class. And it's a movie that is about a social democratic uprising and, you know, socialist Democrats are very much in the news these days. And you look at the film and you go, well, this could have been filmed today. Yeah. Because it's dealing with all the same things, even though it was released in 1983. Mm -hmm. So um, Lizzie Borden, by her own account, was a middle class white woman who kind of got interested in film from like a weird angle because Born in Flames was a project that developed over many years, very piecemeal. She was a painter first. Yes. And in the interview I read with her, she started, you know, in high school and maybe early college doing very representational work. Then she got very interested in art theory, started doing abstract painting. And then she When she moved to Manhattan, she got very much involved in the sort of no-wave art and music scene of the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, And, you know, among her generational co-evils in that scene was... Co-evils? Co-evils. I've never heard that term. C-O-E-A-V-E-L-S. Okay. I may have spelled it wrong there because (laughs) I have trouble spelling in my head. Yes. But, okay, one of her colleagues yes. um, was Catherine Bigelow. Mm-hmm. And that's the one piece of trivia that always pops out <laughs> first when people talk about Born in Flames, because Catherine Bigelow also has a small role in the picture. Mm-hmm. But, like... The and apparently they still go hiking together once a year. Really? That's what I read in the... Do you think they talk about, part. like, why the fuck can't we make another movie? And then they go, oh, that's right, because we're women. And people treat Catherine us like garbage. I think Bigelow is having no trouble making movies right now. Oh, that's she? right. Yeah. yeah. Well, she hasn't made one since for like... She made that Detroit film. Oh, you're right. Year? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So Lizzie Borden is just like, I guess I live in a world where I erased everything after K-19 The Widowmaker for they, some reason. <laughs> they probably talk about how their politics have diverged. Yeah. But anyway, that's another story. So Borden Flames is... I guess like a mock doc, because that's how it's basically structured. Um, People would call it like, I mean, cinema verite is a weird word to use, but like that's what people would associate with the stuff that like Michel Bro was doing Mm -hmm. um, in Quebec. He did a lot of stuff very similar to that, where it's like real people, it's improv, they're also acting, but at the same time, the camera can be put on like a dolly and move and do like cinematic stuff as well. A lot of the story is told from, you know, fake news footage mm-hmm. In addition to fake documentary footage, you sense that a lot of it, this movie was filmed over five years. And, you know, for example, you see protests in the movie and you get the sense that like they went to a real protest and started filming a scene at it. And there's a lot of like um, news footage that she repurposed for her own uses. Mm. At the same time, she took people that were actors and non-actors and had them go through the story, which documents the... Uh, when the film begins, the 10th anniversary of the Socialist Revolution of America. And 
the socialist revolution was ostensibly led by women mm-hmm. and ostensibly was to bring about equality in the sexes. However, as is so often the case, it did not achieve its radical goals. So in the 10th anniversary, everybody, the establishment is celebrating what a great thing this was, but you know, some of the failures included there was a system implemented called the workfare system, which black men started protesting it and they would start to be beaten by the police who were still, you know, a white man. Uh, well, like the film shows two protests. In one of them, men complain that they believe that like minorities and women are getting the better job instead of them. Mm-hmm. And then the newscaster goes, you know what? They do have a point. And the police try to end things nonviolently because they agree that it should be a change. And then you see the um, black men that had a protest and they went and they had to be taken down and punished to the uh, extent of the law. So there are a lot of layoffs and we're told that it's because there are too many women and minorities competing for the same positions. And, <laughs> and they go like, after the black protest, um, they're going to make sure that the men of the household have more of an emphasis than the women. Because they're the breadwinners ostensibly. And yeah. then uh, as the movie begins, a new thing is being implemented where women are going to be paid for doing housework Mm -hmm. and this is the kind of inciting incident for the women's army so the character who is really the big inciting character is a black female militant named adelaide norris who dies under mysterious circumstances in police custody and this incident inspires huge schisms within the feminist communities. There are many women, uh, let's say white bourgeois women, who believe in, shall we say, incremental reform. Yeah, you know, we can't destroy the system because then it'll be worse than what we have now. And as they point out, like, yeah, but there are women right now that have it as bad as it can be. And so it is often the queer and black women who are arguing from a more militant stance, but then the other groups will say this sounds too much like separatism we don't want separatism we want equality and so the movie is very much about these schisms within ostensibly progressive circles Mm -hmm. and so not only does it demonize let's just say like the right and sexism and stuff like that Mm -hmm. under the guise of socialism but it also illustrates and its main like focus is the fact that like things can't move forward because of all these reasons like even an individual going, well, I don't need these people. Like, I can deal with it myself. And the big thesis of the movie, there are, there are many issues the movie raises. Uh, it talks about the mediating influence of the media and mm-hmm. how the media can very much be like a tool of the oppressors. <laughs> Maybe socialism has gone too far at this point. That's Maybe right. we need to get back to real values. We see like a panel discussion of, of bourgeois women on yeah. TV. Maybe they're just selfish. Can't they think of everyone? <laughs> yeah. You know, the reality that institutions still have a bias in favor of powerful people. There's a lot of people talking about who has the right to violence. Mm. You know, when is violence permissible? Or the fact that, like, the entire film escalates because this woman's army at first, all they want to do is put in place, like, shelters and daycare centers. Mm -hmm. And the government is so threatened by this that they have all the women fired, which leads them to, like, rise up and go even further than they originally wanted to go. And one part that particularly reminded me of the present moment was there's a TV panel discussion where there's this one man talking who's ostensibly like a psychiatrist. And he's talking about how, well, this 
this really shows that women are, you know, as Freud would say, more uh, impulsive or I can't remember quite what he says. And I'm thinking this is Jordan Peterson, right? Like <laughs> this is there are certain voices who are considered uh, valid. Yeah. Yeah. Who are the contrarians or the outside the box thinkers who are actually inside the box, but but are permissible on TV? Now, from the way that we're talking about this film, it sounds like a bore that's very didactic. Mm-hmm. I mean, the first time I saw the film, it's a dizzying experience because you're like reaching for purchase and you're just like hammered in the face with all of this information, and all of these characters. And there's no consistent point of view. No. Uh, like, yeah, one second it's documentary, one second it's mm. uh, a news footage. It was actually the second time that I saw it that things started to pull into focus <laughs> because I had that structure and I knew where it was going. Mm. So I knew where all these pieces fitted together. Even though that first time, like what she's saying is very evident and it hurts a lot <laughs> because not only is it obvious, but it's every And I think the thesis of the movie, the big thing that's pulling all these points together are the idea that socialism is an endless struggle. Mm -hmm. So even if you get it, even if, you know, Bernie Sanders gets to be president or something like that, like the fight is not over. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The idea that like, oh, it's better than it's ever been. I mean, that could be true, but like people are still suffering. And why aren't you making these changes because of that? And also that like sexism is and racism is evident in like the most obvious ways that people will not acknowledge right. not all women are the same mm-hmm. so you know what is equality yes yeah and like this film works i think that it's like almost a perfect object for what it wants to be and it's frustrating that lizzie borden only got to make two movies after this mm-hmm. now i could understand after something like born in flames that people going like oh maybe she only had like one in her it took her five years to make this like like could she do a real narrative movie and it actually took quite a number of years for her to finally get a shot to direct another feature-length film and that picture was working girls which came out in 1987 this is a movie about sex workers working at an expensive new york brothel it's particularly told from the point of view of one character named Molly, played by Louis Smith, who is actually gay, but works there uh, Mm. servicing men during the day. And it's... uh, I mean, expensive. Like, it's like anyone's house that, like, these women hang out in and just wait for uh, Johns to come over so they can have sex with them. I mean, it's not... I mean, I'm not sure what my image in in my head would be of, like, a really sordid brothel. When you say expensive, I assume, like, a boudoir or some... Eyes wide shut or something. Yeah, exactly. Nothing but mass. It looks like an upper-middle-class apartment. Yeah, exactly. And, like, what people talk about when they talk about this film is the idea that, like, Lizzie Borden is tackling the idea of sex workers like it's just a job. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not sordid. These are not women that are, like, struggling. It's almost a direct reaction. And I, I mean, almost, it is to the documentary, Not Another Love Story, which had been like a big cause celeb many years before. And for people that don't know what Not Another Love Story is, what is it, Will? Uh, It is a National Film Board documentary about the sex industry. I think it's by uh, Bonnie Klein. Yes, Naomi Klein's mother, the uh, writer of No Logo. That's right. And it's like extremely, you know, second wave feminist, you know, Andrea Dworkin, Gloria Steinem, that view of the, the porn industry as this totally 
dehumanizing force that is all about the subjugation of women. I mean, it's a film that is all about this stripper who, when the film starts, is very happy with her job, being shown by the director that she is being abused and that it's horrible. And it actually ends with her like dancing on the beach, now free. Not a Love Story is actually like a very fascinating, just like document of that period of New York. Mm -hmm. Like you you see her go, you know, through all of these seedy porn bookstores. Like stuff that is now Disneyland. Yes. Yeah. And like Lizzie Borden wanted to almost craft a reaction to that to show that like sex workers are not all like I don't want to say miserable because they are miserable. Well, they're not fragile in this film. They're very I mean, the movie is not you know, in favor of the sex industry and mm-hmm. presents it as this kind of dehumanizing thing. But, but it presents it like any job. But that's though. the thing. Yeah. It, yeah, it's no more dehumanizing than any other, yeah, exploitative job mm-hmm. where people are treated badly. Yes. Um, and it's a film that is never erotic. Like, there's a lot of nudity in it, but it's always yeah. treated as, like, matter of fact, like it would be if yeah. it, you were this, sitting like, there watching it. The thing is, though, it's also not, like, anti-erotic. No. Yeah, I understand. Like, yeah. it doesn't make it look, like, gross or horrible, because then you'd be in not a love story territory. Yeah, so, you know, we see many of the male clients as they have their encounters with these women. Some of them have unusual sexual kinks, mm-hmm. like one of them wants to be called a doctor. And uh, he wants the person that he's sleeping with to pretend that she's blind mm-hmm. And that, like, she gains her sight when he makes her orgasm. (laughs) Right. Uh, Some of the men are quite mean and aggressive. Mm -hmm. Some of them are actually quite sweet. Yes. uh, Some of them, you know, have that fantasy that, uh, oh, run away with me. I'll I'll pay for you. I will be the special one and you will fall in love with me. But all of them, even the worst ones, like the most of the women who work here are sort of numb to it. Like it is a job. Mm -hmm. Uh, And except for one, just like a job, they have like a shitty boss Mm -hmm. who like makes life hell for no reason. And like, won't admit that she's running a bordello. And as they say, like, why doesn't she just call herself a pimp? That's what she is. Yeah. And like, she won't admit to that. It It, often feels like a bit of a hangout movie. That's exactly. And it takes place over one day. It's something Mm -hmm. that like, you would associate it with like Richard Linklater or something yeah. like that. It's not particularly dramatic. No. Um, but I-, I think it's quite powerful in its way. And I think that it's very pointed. <laughs> like every shot serves a purpose. There's this one sequence where there's a new worker who's sitting down and just having a conversation. And Lizzie Borden cuts between the looks of like everybody participating in the conversation <laughs> to showcase the power dynamics and how like... <laughs> commenting on someone's shoes can be like Mm -hmm. a barb to shift how things are going. Yeah, but... There's no one incident in in this place that is a life-ruining, intolerable no. incident. It's just the daily kind of grind of that. Mm-hmm. Like, again, like any shitty job. Yeah, and I think that's what's amazing about it is that it shows how a job is dull, but at the same time, it's not a film that's dull. It's mm-hmm. a film that feels like a bunch of people that have grown to form relationships at work and they have conversations yeah. that you would have at work with history. And, and even like, some of the encounters with the clients can be okay. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's work, right? Like, you don't know who's going to come to the counter and what conversation you're going to have. Mm-hmm. And it never kind of tackles the idea of how this is, like, this specific act is dehumanizing to these people. Mm-hmm. Like, it's touched upon a little bit, but these people, it just work for them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what makes the film as fascinating as it is. And it makes it kind of baffling that, like, I don't hear people talk about this movie very often. Yeah, it could be. It's, it's quite a rich object. It mm-hmm. should be reclaimed. And, I mean... When it came out, Lizzie Borden, like, 
She won a bunch of awards. I believe she won one at Sundance. That's right. When it came out. And it actually took quite a long time after that picture to finally get to her third and last feature film, Love Crimes, which came out in 1992. And I think this is the one that more or less tanked her career. And because she's a woman, she only gets one (laughs) shot, I guess. I had kind of high hopes going into this one because I know this movie has a terrible reputation. Mm -hmm. But Lizzie Borden director of Born in Flames and Working Girls doing a, a feminist spin on the erotic thriller genre. So if people That's are wondering, enticing. like, what is that? Like, we're talking about the films like uh, Basic Instinct, uh, Fatal Attraction, even her best pal, uh, Catherine Bigelow, did Blue Steel, which mm-hmm. is also like an erotic thriller. And Lizzie Borden tackling this genre kind of subject is, like you said, enticing because, like, she hasn't done that yet, right? And when you find out that it you know, was such a flop and it was so critically maligned, you think, oh, oh, maybe it was subversive in some way that like, maybe this is in need of reclamation. And having finally seen it now, I will say that it has many interesting things about it. And yet it is also like a near complete failure, in my opinion. I mean, I really liked it. And I'll tell you why. I think that and I watched the unrated version, which you watched the theatrical version. I watched the theatrical version, but then I watched the nine minutes of deleted scenes after. So this is a film that famously, it was completely butchered during the shooting as well as um, In the, the editing, editing yeah. by um, a little company called Miramax Films. Oh, really? Who ran Who ran that company? I don't remember. Some bozo. <laughs> that's. I'm sure he's in like a, a grave by now. So. <laughs> and so like the final vision is never going to be exactly what Lizzie Borden wanted. And this could also be an example of, like, she's just kind of figuring out how she wants to tell these kind of stories. Because, like, it is a film that when you break it down piece by piece, like, there's so much to, like, savor, even though that it's pretty evident that these pieces are not always working together. The plot of the movie is Sean Young, uh, the, the legendary Sean Young, plays uh, the an assistant district attorney who is on the trail of a sexual predator, played by Patrick Bergen from Sleeping with the Enemy. Mm-hmm. Uh, playing the same role as that film, in fact, pretty much. Well, I mean, like, right there, you get so much, like, September sexual stuff. The fact that Sean Yun is starring in this movie says a lot because this is the period after the Batman Returns fiasco mm-hmm. where people like documented how Sean Young acted very neurotically to get the role of Catwoman. Oh, and that- her, her relationship with uh, James Woods that fizzled and mm-hmm. he said she was so crazy. And, that? Oh man, I mean, James I, now, Woods. Now James Woods, there's a man who's very stable. Yeah. We can take his word for it. <laughs> and so like her being in this role already has like baggage uh, coming along with it. And the fact that the main male character is cast from sleeping with the enemy, which is a film about like a bad guy mm-hmm. and the kind of, I mean, erotic charge that's around that, that nobody wants to acknowledge mm-hmm. and what that means. And that's what the film is dealing with directly. The, he, the predator is kind of a Terry Richardson like f- photographer. I don't know if Terry Richardson was active yet. He wasn't. I checked actually. <laughs> he looks like him though too. Yeah, he has, like yeah, the mustache and everything. Uh, but you know, he's a, in fact, he's posing as a more successful photographer so that he can find emotionally vulnerable women and sort of break them down and groom them for abuse. And 
much is made about how it's kind of a gray area what he's doing. And I'd actually like to read a, a quote from the Entertainment Weekly review by Owen Gleiberman, um, mm-hmm. uh, which which was written in 1992. He said, Bergen keeps passing himself off as a Vogue photographer, and he sometimes steals his victims' cars. Other than that, virtually nothing he does is against the law. The absurdity of the movie is built right into the premise. Young seems to want to prosecute Bergen, not because he's criminal, but because he's a macho misogynist. The story is framed as a diatribe against his attitude toward women, his Polaroid sleaziness, his whole aura of danger and mastery. In Love Crimes, the real fantasy Lizzie Borden is selling is that sexuality, if it's nasty and exploitative enough, is a crime in itself. So I think that's fascinating because I read some reviews around that time and they essentially all said the same thing, which is very similar to that. Well, this guy... You know, he's gross and sleazy, but he's not a criminal, even though what he's doing is sexual assault. Yeah. And and I mean, I think, you know, the movie is quite careful to, I think, raise the question, mm-hmm. like, like, to what extent is, you know, at, at what point does being uh, a bad guy become criminal? Yes. Like, that is one of the central questions motivating the movie. So it's not like Lizzie Borden is blind to this issue. No. And I mean, these issues this so-called gray area is I mean, know, very Liz- important. Lizzie Borden sets up this whole situation where uh, like a bunch of women each like say in almost a documentary style fashion what happened to them. Mm-hmm. And then the Sean Young character advises what they should do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's fascinating because like films don't deal with that, right? Like this gray area is something that is not dramatic in a way that people want. Like they want the bad guy. Mm-hmm. And I mean like the, the actor who plays the sexual predator in this film, he's obviously bad. But the fact that like reviewers are like, what's the problem? Yeah. Says so much about what Lizzie Borden was trying to tackle with this. Yeah. And I think a big issue people have with this film is that they want it to be sexy. And it's not. It's not. So maybe having said all this, maybe I should get to why I think it's a failure. Yes. And much of it has to do with the two central performances. Mm -hmm. I think Sean Young, God lover, is very bad in this film. Yeah. She gives a performance that's, uh, let's call it Brissonian. Yeah. But I mean, like, (laughs) I almost feel that, like, it works for what Lizzie Bourne is trying to do because it is that kind of disconnect. Like, this is a performance you would see in Bourne in Flames, right? Which Uh is, like, kind of off. But when you put it in the context of like a slick kind of erotic thriller with like gel lighting and like crazy camera angles it feels off well the the central act of the film is that she kind of puts herself on the line to try to catch this Mm -hmm. guy so she tries to get herself in a situation he finds out what she's doing so he you know locks her in a closet he tries to play all the tricks on her and then they they kind of get involved in this sexual cat and mouse and on some level, I think, you know, part of it is because scenes were cut from the middle of the movie. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I watched the scenes later and I still quite don't think it would have worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think the attraction that she feels for him is... And a lot of it just has to do with the fact that these two actors don't have any chemistry. They don't. But it's almost like the way that it's set up is like a father figure punishing her. Uh-huh. And that's where the kind of... I, I mean, there's... The attraction that the movie shows is still very disconnected. Mm -hmm. It's like essentially the worst act that she commits in the film is to let herself be photographed nude. Right. And that is like a damning act in to most male viewers eyes in the Uh picture. But like there is like a sex scene 
that's all in her mind's eye. Like she imagines right. it. And when it happened, I was like, wait, what? Like, and, and a lot of it is linked to these flashbacks from mm-hmm. her childhood when yes. she watches her as a child, she watches her own mother be abused. Mm-hmm. And I felt that these flashbacks were a little bit tacked on. Yeah. I didn't quite buy the connection between these and like the main story. And I feel like there's a way that it, that it could have resonated, but you know, so much of it depends. Like, I think there just needed to be more scenes of them developing the relationship before everything went awry, right? I guess, but, like, I like the idea that, like, he's bad in a way that she's attracted to and that Uh the viewer doesn't necessarily understand. Okay. Because her stance is very hypocritical, at certain points, but it is the kind of hypocritical stuff that anybody who's attracted to this stuff can go through. Mm-hmm. Like, you know this is bad, but you're still attracted to it in some way. I also didn't fully buy her as an investigator because there's that <laughs> whole scene where she, uh, ha- you know takes him in her car, she arrests him, and then she leaves him in the car so that she can go talk on the phone and then he steals her car. Yes. It's like, this is the DA? I mean, like, (laughs) there's so much other stuff, and I'm not going to disagree with you, like, that stuff doesn't work. Like, there is no chemistry between the two main actors, Uh and that it is kind of like... So, like I, I stodgy. Like I just I just wish the movie were half an hour longer. And I mean those nine minutes of cutscenes help. Yes. But if there was like I mean there's one huge hour. scene that's cut from the film where she like screams at him yeah. and is very didactic and then he spanks her, which is like a big chunk that I yeah. feel that by taking that out, it actually like feels even weirder than well, it is. Well, without that scene, the movie's nonsensical. Yes. Because in the theatrically released version, she escapes from the closet, and then the next scene is she's just in the bathtub and he wanders in. That's so weird. And it's like, like it makes no... what happened? Yeah. How did we get... Why didn't she leave? Mm-hmm. Like, that big chunk of footage in the middle explains how we got there. Yeah, and it shows her dazed in a way and kind of dominated that would mm-hmm. allow her to be in a space for him to do these things. Mm-hmm. I mean, the film is very didactic and, like, it's constantly tackling this idea of, like, women and the lack of power that they have. Like, Sean Young as a DA is very proactive and every man tells her, like, you shouldn't be doing this, like, stay in your place. Well, she's a DA, but when she goes to a small town and just talks to the cops there, they treat her so dismissively. What's interesting in the uh, unrated version is that it actually shifts the scene from the end of the movie to the beginning of the movie, oh. where her partner is being interviewed about, like, what happened, and her partner goes, if this was a man, this would not be happening. And they're like, yep, you're right, but she's a woman, so that's why we're continuing this stuff. Like, that's really on the nose, but sometimes you got to be on the nose when you're dealing in this like milieu, right? Sure. Because like nobody else is doing it like this. Well, I will say that it is, uh, even though I didn't think it was a particularly successful movie, I do think it is better than the entry in the official Razzie movie guide mm-hmm. uh, indicates that it was, which is how I first heard about this movie. Well, I think that it kind of illustrates something that people don't really talk about that often. The idea of badness is often related to sexuality being portrayed in a way that people don't find erotic Mm -hmm. and because of that they react very viciously to it like there's one scene in the movie where the guy goes like uh you know they don't care about brutality they care about perversity that's what Mm -hmm. they'll um convict on because that's what people are disturbed by and it's almost like when this movie came out and i mean sean young gives a very wooden performance and the movie is not sexy people are like oh, what is this? Like, it's bad. Why isn't it giving me what I want? I hate this. Mm. I mean, like, just looking at some of the reviews that I stumble upon on the great IMDb, ah, yes. like, 
Uh, Lizzie Borden's Love Crimes is an important film dealing with the dark side of female sexuality and including full frontal female nudity, which sure beats the male kind. Ah, hell yeah. <laughs> like, ugh. Or another one that goes, with her bland suits and superfluous hair gel, Young does a decent job at convincing the audience of her devout hatred for men. Why else would she ask her only friend to pose as a prostitute just so she can arrest cops who try to pick up on them? This hatred is also the reason why she relentless pursues a perverted photographer who gives women a consensual thrill and the driving force behind this crappy movie. Wow, that is a insane misreading of what the film is trying to do. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, like, that's the reaction. So maybe my reaction to the movie is against that as well. Uh -huh, yeah. Like all these misogynist takes and just blatant misreadings and sexism make me go like, well, I see what Lizzie Borden was trying to do. Sure. So I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt for this stuff. And it was taken out of her hands and completely recut. Sure. I mean, it's not an undiscovered classic by any stretch of the imagination, but I think there is stuff there that is worthwhile. And as you said, doesn't deserve to put in the Razzie category right. or to have tanked Lizzie Borden's career permanently mm -hmm. because she has not made a feature length film since then. She has directed several episodes of uh, The Red Shoe Diaries and a couple of other shows. But yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah, she did a An anthology film, film. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, that was a bunch of propaganda directors, the music video directors like Michael Bay and David Fincher worked for in this anthology that included films by Lizzie Borden. Uh, Tony Randall, the director of Hellraiser 2. And a young Alexander Payne. Yes, What's it right. called? It was uh, reviewed in the new issue of Lunch Meat. Uh, I don't know. I think it was called like Inside Out. That's what it's called, yeah. And there was like four volumes of it and all like little erotic short films. Very, kind of softcore yeah. stuff. Very yeah. curious what, what that is. I'd you know like what? I could out. not find a copy of it. Like I was looking for it to see if there was a DVD or anything like that. And it just kind of got buried. I bet you Alexander Payne is like, I don't want this to be released. <laughs> yeah. And even on Letterboxd, not one review for it. And leads again to like those shorts I bet tanked Lizzie Borden even more because she became associated with this kind of softcore erotica and when that went out they're like wow we can't get Lizzie Borden to make movies for us well I don't think she's retired I believe she's still developing projects she works as a script doctor mm. um, according to some interviews that I read and she's had projects that are like almost close to getting made. She was meeting with Susan Sarandon for a project called Rialto, September 11th, 2001. And so she flew down and right before the meeting happened, 9-11 happened, Susan Sarandon got busy and the whole project fell through. Yeah. I I believe it is actually about a famous abortion doctor. Really? So, uh... Ugh, that would have been fascinating. I mean, could you imagine if that got made? It would have been so controversial. Yeah, but it would have been, like, good. Yeah. And it would have led to other stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Instead, we're getting that Roe versus Wade film made by a <laughs> bunch of right-wing crazy that's coming out. Uh, yeah, the one that has a... Uh, that stars Jamie Kennedy and has a cameo by Milo Yiannopoulos. Ooh, the film that, as the headline that I saw said, <laughs> the one that Kevin Sorbo dropped out from doing. <laughs> that should be interesting. Anyway, so I would recommend anyone just checking out those three Lizzie Borden films. It's only three pictures, and they're a different side of her, each of them, like a different form and a different genre. Mm -hmm. So, like, there's a lot of work there, and it's a shame that she can't make, or she hasn't been able to make any other movies. 
Justin, do we have any letters this week? We do have letters. Thank you very much for sending them in. It's been a little bit dry for a while. Yeah. And uh, you can send them to us at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. I mean, you know, me and Will were talking about what people could ask us, you know, what our favorite color is, um, other stuff like that. It's red. Yeah, It's red? Yeah, I like red. The color of your enemy's blood. <laughs> That's Me? Right. It's green. Because obviously... That's a color of the Ninja Turtles. So our first letter is from Peter Davies, and he goes, Hey guys, this is my third time emailing the show. Thank you. And we'll still read your letter, because we <laughs> love our fans. Earlier this year, I saw Lynn Ramsey's You Were Never Really Here, which I thought was visually interesting, if somewhat slight piece of work. Did you see it? Yeah. Uh, I, I would agree, actually. Visually interesting, slight oof, piece of work. No, man, I loved uh, You Were Never Really Here. I then listened to an interview with her on the Director's Cut, the Director's Guild of America's podcast, an amazing podcast. I've only listened to one or two episodes. Listen to it. Yeah. It's great because you can get like uh, an episode where Martin Campbell, the director of The Foreigner, is interviewed about that film by the director of The World Is Not Enough, the James Bond picture. You know, there is an episode which I haven't listened to. I've only seen a picture, but it's Werner Herzog being interviewed by Kevin Smith. Really? Could you imagine? I can't. I'm actually afraid to listen to it. <laughs> On this particular episode, Lynn Ramsey talked about how the film's budget was so small that she was forced to cut literally dozens of pages from the script in the middle of the shoot, which accounts for how incredibly sparse and stripped back the character development and film in general was. This made me reconsider the film and think maybe that I judge it too harshly and that maybe the things I like about it deserved more praise and consideration. My question for you is, have you ever had a big change of opinion about a film once you learned more about its production history, especially if it was deeply troubled? And do we, as an audience members, ever stop to think about what conditions films are made under, or do we just sit back and slightly unfairly demand a masterpiece every time? So on that second question, no, people never think about it unless it costs an absurd amount of money. In that case, it's demonized. Yeah, which is crazy because, you know, back in the 40s and 50s, movies used to be marketed as, you know, Ben-Hur, uh, $10 million in the making. And people mm. would say, oh, that's amazing. Let's go see it. But now when a picture is like $150 million, they're like, how dare they spend that much money? Well, like, I mean, I didn't see John Carter. But... That's what I'm, I was thinking of. Yeah. John Carter's fun. Like, yeah. it costs a ridiculous amount of money, but it's fun. And the fact that you cannot stumble upon a review that mentions that fact. Well, like, I, it's like Ishtar as yeah. well. It's like that. But like, like who cares? It doesn't you know? matter. Like, and You didn't pay for it. And it's <laughs> like, you know, those Transformers film costs like $200 million and nobody ever mentions that. Yeah. So, yeah. and uh, have we ever reconsidered a film once we've learned about its production history? Uh, I'm sure. Well, I mean, love crimes, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, uh, I can't mention anything off the top of my head, but guaranteed, because I'm a filmmaker myself. So I automatically have sympathy when I hear that kind of stuff. Well, I mean, there are so many times, you know, particularly with like low budget movies, maybe exploitation mm. films, for instance. Uh, we talked in a recent Patreon episode about uh, Roger Corman's Creature from the Haunted Sea. Yeah. And that's a movie, if you know anything about its production history, like, or The Little Shop of Horrors, the Roger Corman version, where like so much of the meaning of the film comes from the circumstances of its production you know mm -hmm. like the production and the stories around the production are an extension of the text i mean yeah Fitzcarraldo, for or god's the sake the evil dead yeah yeah like the evil dead cannot be mentioned without chronicling like these friends that went to a cabin for a few months yeah. and shot it yeah, like or night of the living dad mm -hmm. uh, yeah like all that stuff is so tied together that it kind of defines the film and that even like casual viewers will note those stories. Mm. But as far as like people going, oh, now that I realize how this was made, I reevaluate it. I don't think that happens very often 
two normal people because they assume films come fully formed. <laughs> like, they assume most of the time the like, actors show up and they, they improv it on set. Like, you'd be surprised how often people have no interest or understanding of what goes into making a movie. Ha, fools. <laughs> fools. No, I mean, they don't need to. Yeah. They're just going to evaluate, you know, the author is dead, right? Like, what's <laughs> up there on screen? Uh-huh. And um, the letter continues. I was also wondering if either of you know much about Nollywood cinema. Occasionally, a clip from a Nollywood film will go viral, and they just look inexplicable and absurd. But this can't be the whole story. Have you taken any time to discover any Nollywood classics? No, I haven't. And I don't want to blame it on, like, the fact that they're not out there, because I'm sure some of them are. But, like, I've looked, and I have not been able to find anything with English subtitles. Yeah, I, I haven't seen any of them either, but I would very much like to. Tiff did a sidebar years ago that had, like, a bunch of Nollywood films, English subtitled, like, a dozen. And I, I'm kicking myself to this day that I didn't go and see them, because, like, I cannot see them other than that. Yeah, hopefully the more opportunities will eventually present themselves. Because, like, the reality of yeah. film distribution in even right now, is that we assume everything is available, but stuff like Hong Kong or China, those things have English subtitles most of the time because Hong Kong was a British colony where they were forced to put English subtitles on stuff. Mm -hmm. And like, I mean, I don't want to speak for Nollywood filmmakers, but like when we did our Wakiliwood night where we showed like some work in progresses with um, one of the actors and producers of those films, he made it very clear that like the films they make don't believe they'll have any um, kind of reach anywhere else but their communities. Mm. And it's crazy because I believe Nollywood is like the first or second most prolific film community in the world. Wow. And the fact that like, I haven't seen any of their films. And I mean, I'm, it's also a like prejudice thing there because these films are very low budget and they have technical ideas that like we expect more of. And that there is that like, ah, that doesn't fit like what we expect. So, you know, I, I don't dig deeper than I would normally on a regular film. By the way, um, to that point you mentioned earlier, that Wakaliwood night that you had at the Royal was absolutely amazing. Yeah, um, it was something that was a once in a lifetime experience because we got in contact with a um, North American who went down to Wakaliga, a slum in Uganda's capital, Kampala, after seeing that, like, Who Killed Captain Alex clip. He's like, well, I want to know more of this. And he just went down, he left everything behind, and he essentially lived there for a long time, helping them with these crazy action movies that they were making. And then he, I don't know how it happened. I guess he must have been doing a tour, starting a tour, but he came down, had all the painted posters from the movies, showed, like, rough cuts of films that still have not been released. We saw a film called Bad Black, yes, which is about an hour long, and it's this ridiculous, very action-packed action movie shot in a slum in Uganda mm-hmm. by the people who live there, uh, and they have a particular thing they do in Uganda where they have a narrator who, like, not only does he narrate all movies uh but he almost like mystery science theater is the movies as well and it's so funny yeah like like when you say that you're like uh, i don't know about that but like these narrators like their chops are like polished because well the narrator will say things like oh my god he's driving the car he's so much terrific action and then like a white guy will show up and he'll be like this guy have bad agent <laughs> yeah or he's like he's action hero like Chuck Norris, Van Damme, Bill Murray. <laughs> like, 
they're in on the joke and, and it's and like the, the guy who we saw said that like he you know would bring uh dvds of buster keaton movies over there and mm. then buster keaton became very big in uganda because mm. of this and they would actually do their the dub narration over buster keaton movies i can't even imagine i would love to see that oh, version of and the general that night we even got to like interview the filmmakers on skype oh. like whew, that was crazy and unfortunately um we've tried to get like more movies but like the filmmakers like they make these movies and they just release them and they're done mm-hmm. they've gotten a little bit more traction since then um you could actually find their film who killed captain alex which was the big trailer that went around in its entirety on youtube mm-hmm. so i would recommend anybody who's really interested in this and checking that out mm-hmm. because it is amazing who killed captain alex seriously watch it yeah and uh i mean i'd love to do uh more stuff about nollywood cinema i've held and brought home a book from the library on nollywood cinema and started reading it and gone i i can't watch any of these films it's that frustrating thing like i read a book on filipino cinema as well mm-hmm. and i was reading it the history and it's fascinating stuff and I look to see if I can watch the films anywhere with English subtitles. They just don't exist. I watched, speaking of Filipino cinema, I watched that documentary about Wang Wang, mm-hmm. uh, The Search for Wang Wang. And kind of a subplot of that movie is how unappreciated Filipino cinema is, even in its homeland. Yeah. Like so many of the movies, you know, are, are either locked away in a vault somewhere or they, they've decomposed. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. like, even though they sometimes get out in the world, remember there was a Filipino film playing near my house yeah. in the theater that we didn't check out. It was. It only ran for a week. I wanted yeah, to. Yeah, I wanted to see it so mm-hmm. bad. I mean, but Filipino cinema has my favorite anecdote about a country trying to foster a film industry. Do you remember this one? It's in Mondo Macabro. Uh, no, I don't. What? It's that the they built a film kind of like theater and center, and it was going to be the biggest one in like the country. <laughs> and what happened was they were using like cheap materials, were moving too fast, and it collapsed. Uh. And so there were all these bodies that were stuck in the cement, but they had a deadline to meet. So what they did is they just repaved it all and any limbs sticking out, they just chopped them out oh and paved over it. And what happened with that was it opened, it went well, and then it started to stink because the, <laughs> the, the bodies rotted. <laughs> like, that's crazy stuff. And I'm sure there's tons more of that, but like, I just wish these films were available mm. and because I would watch them, absolutely. And this letter continues, as per his Twitter bio, would Will please tell us a story of how and when he met Dolph Lundgren? Okay, uh, it's really not that exciting a story. <laughs> I was writing for my university newspaper, the Varsity at U of T, and I got an opportunity to be part of a roundtable interview with two other uh, reporters with Mr. Dolph Lundgren when he was in town promoting The Expendables. Uh, I wrote an article about the encounter, um, and uh, what I remember about him is that he was uh, very handsome. Uh, <laughs> he was very large. Mm-hmm. He's very much what you think he would look like. He looks very hyper real. Like I remember thinking he looks like a, a cross between like Robert Redford and Klaus Kinski. Wow. But, but like supercharged. I love Dolph Lundgren. Yeah. Like, I all think, like him. I think that he has 
like a career that's very interesting of like the choices. He became a director for a while and yeah. made his own films. Well, he he has a degree, like he's a doctorate in literature or something like uh, that. Chemistry, Chemis- I believe. Chemistry, yeah. even better. Yeah. yeah, which Expendables 2 makes a joke about. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and like, and he's the underdog too, right? Because he's under Stallone, so it's interesting to see all the choices that he's made. Yeah. And this letter finishes up with, I moved to Edinburgh at the start of this year and I found a regular movie night that screens B-movies and horror films back to back. So far, I've seen Frank Helen Lara's Basket Case and Brain Damage, which were a total joy. Uh, I would recommend for people to go out and find people screening stuff because I think that's important and that's how you meet friends. That's how I know all my friends in Toronto is by going to those screenings because when I moved here, I didn't know anybody. The first time I ever met you, uh, Justin, was at the screening that you and Peter had a fantasy mission force. In the back of a sushi shop. That's right. Ah, legendary screening. (laughs) Anyway, Who would have known that that screening (laughs) would give birth to the important Cinema Club empire? (laughs) Ah, man. Thank you, sushi shop. That... Uh, wouldn't let us come back because they started to charge us like hundreds of dollars every night. (laughs) Anyway, keep up the great work, Peter. Well, thank you very much for the letter, Peter. Those were some good questions. And the final letter is from Andrew Smith. He goes, Hey, Will and Justin, long-time listener here. How about an episode on movies filmed and set in Toronto? It's fun seeing how filmmakers choose to represent the city and the different ways in which geographies are and are not respected. Films like Victoria Day, Toronto Stories, Going Down the Road, The Only Thing You Know, Last Night, and Take This Waltz come to mind. Failing that, how about a deep dive into the Quebec production system? Les Ordres, Crazy, Le Déclin de l'Empire Américain, etc. are some films that could really only be made in Quebec. Keep up the great work. Andrew. You know, in a way, I'm kind of more interested in the Quebec popular cinema because I feel that's so uh, out of reach to me. So we're going to watch like Elvis Graton, uh, Les Boys, Les Boys, Un Père en Flic, uh, Les Trois Petits Cochons. Like those are all like French popular films that are like number one at the box office. Because, you know, for our American listeners who may not know, Quebec has a thriving, thriving film industry. Uh, Like uh, an industry that makes the rest of Canada pale in comparison. They have celebrities who are just popular in Quebec and Mm. they have a thriving late night talk show circuit in Quebec. Not Uh, late night, like just all day talk show circuit. yeah, Yeah. yeah, Yeah, because I grew up in a house that only spoke French and my stepdad while not a Quebecer, identified as one, Mm -hmm. like, because that is, like, pure French. Mm -hmm. And so the TV would always play, like, Radio-Canada and, like, the French shows, which are these very slick, like, you'd assume these people were, like, the stars of an entire country the way that they're treated. And, I mean, the rest of Canada, its entertainment industry has never quite caught on the same Mm -hmm. way that Quebec's has, mostly because it's in English, and so is America. Yes, Uh, so mm -hmm. Quebec has that feeling of, well, this is for us, and it Mm -hmm. represents us, while Canada, they've always struggled with that idea of what a Canadian film is. And, I mean, we got into a little bit in the, what feels like years ago, (laughs) our episode about Canadian cinema, which got me interested in it, which is what my main area of research is right now but i would definitely talk about popular quebec cinema even though i don't i don't that, like those movies i don't think i would enjoy it no i you know what movies i do like is they did like a fast and the furious riff called <laughs> nitro and they did like one and then a long gap sequel like eight years later or something like wow. that and these films are fascinating in they take this idea of fast and the furious and make it a downbeat character piece that you associate with Canadian cinema and the fact that that's what it is is really interesting to me. Well I'm kind of interested in in Quebec cinema too because even though they have such a thriving industry like a very popular Quebec movie might make five million dollars. Yes. That's that's kind of the high end so. But that's enough. That's enough. Yeah. But a Fast and the Furious riff 
you know, on a budget of less than $5 million? I mean, you feel it. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's a good one. That's actually a good suggestion, like popular uh, Quebec cinema. And I mean, even normal Quebec cinema. Yeah. But we could take filmmakers, like we could talk a, an episode about someone like Denis Arcand, which I know Will is not a big fan of. And well, see, I like, haven't seen enough of his movies. What he represents. I mean, Denis Arcand... What I love about him is that he was an NFB filmmaker who made a documentary that was banned because it was about workers in a textile industry and how shittily they were treated and that it actually got like bootlegged on VHS. And when he got money to make another feature film, he made a rape revenge film about filmmakers who are making a documentary about a textile industry. Oh, interesting. So it's like life imitating art, and then it turns into a film where people get thrown into throw blo- uh, snowblowers. All right, look, I just resent his attack on our universal healthcare system <laughs> yeah, and the barbarian invasion, so I've never forgiven him for it, but whatever. <laughs> As for the Toronto suggestion, you know, actually... Um, we uh, talked about it well, a lot. A, a previous letter writer, Mitch, uh, suggested that we do something on like the, the new Toronto cinema, like Kazakh Red Wine and people like that and I, I'm not so sure about that but like I guess I am kind of interested in like and, and this may encompass people like him mm-hmm. yeah like the way Toronto is represented in film yeah I, I, I a little bit misunderstood that letter at first when I was reading it because I thought he meant like oh I guess we'll do movies like Max Payne and Resident <laughs> Evil Apocalypse <Right. laughs> films that, but like what does Toronto mean and how it's represented that could be something we could tell we've talked about it yeah because um, Take This Waltz is a good example yeah like it presents a very particular image of Toronto. Bruce McDonald made a film with Mickey Rourke in it very briefly that takes place in Toronto. It takes place like in Kensington Market mm. and places like that. And it's like a neo-noir that doesn't really work. But that'd be an interesting one to talk about as well. Well, you know, uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Is the one that we would have to talk well, about. Well, we'd have to talk about it too because like we were both, I think, what, 20 years old when it came out. And, you know, the movie could not have been more made for people like us. You know? I was <laughs> just about to finish Teddy Bomb when that movie came out. And you were about to finish Teddy Bond. I was about to finish Teddy Bond, okay. yes. And what's funny about that is that, like, people cannot review Teddy Bomb without mentioning Scott Pilgrim. Well, I mean, I was, I was honestly about to say, I thought, I, I thought it was more inspired by no, Scott Pilgrim. No, okay. we, were, we were done, essentially, filming wow. when Scott Pilgrim came. I mean, it's the same influences, like kung fu movies, yeah, yeah, like yeah, crazy yeah. camera movies. Yeah. I well, mean, Scott, Scott Pilgrim, though, it's like a movie that, like, if you were, like, a 21-year-old, like, uh, uh, male of a certain level of masculinity who hung around in the annex a lot, mm. that movie was made for you. But... A little teaser to the episode. I like Scott Pilgrim. I don't love it. Okay. Ooh, so we'll find out more about that. Someone just wrote a review on Amazon.com for Teddy Bob that said, this is if Scott Pilgrim made Scott Pilgrim. (laughs) (laughs) That's not bad. No. Uh, Oh, wait. So that's a good thing to point out. Teddy Bomb, the movie that we just mentioned, is available on Amazon Prime now if you're in the US and the UK. So if you're like, man, what is like a movie Justin would have made? Eight years ago, yeah. <laughs> like it was a when Justin back. was a younger man. Yeah, yeah, a thinner man. <laughs> um, uh, you can see it. Uh, it's on there. It's really low budget, but hopefully it's fun. Check it out. Give it a above four star rating, please, <laughs> and write a review of it. I would very much appreciate it. And if you have Amazon Prime, it's free. You can just click it. And if you don't have Amazon Prime. You can buy it. You can rent it for, I think, like three bucks or something like that. So the Patreon episode this week is about the act and the art and everything associated with it of buying used movies and used movie books at used bookstores, mm-hmm. which uh, is a hobby of Justin's and mine. Uh, so essentially, it's like 
hoarders and capitalism and all of that fun stuff collected in one episode. It's like, you're cool, duder, and I'm wet movie. That's right. And we just talk about, like, the favorite things that we found, the things we've always been looking for. And also the way that it is kind of an illness. Oh, yes. Uh, an addiction. Yeah. yeah. And uh, there's some um, dark nights of the souls that go on. But don't worry. Uh, we may pull out of it at the last second and go, oh, man, but did you hear about the new film that Kino is releasing soon? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's $5 a month. You can check it out at uh, patreon.com, Important Cinema Club podcast. And if you subscribe, you also get the whole back catalog and you get four episodes a month that are exclusive to the Patreon. And you also get any bonus stuff that we do as well. Because not only did me and Will go see uh, a Hong Kong movie that we recorded an episode on, me, the director of photography and the producer and the star of Teddy Bomb went to go see Upgrade, a film that has a very similar plot to Teddy Bomb. And then we recorded a podcast about it. Oh, wow. Okay. So uh, if you've got a Patreon subscriber, you can listen to that. And what's interesting about that is that the star of Teddy Bomb, I haven't seen him in a year. And I just messaged him and was like, hey, you want to come and see this movie with us? He's like, sure. Yeah, let's do it. So it's like a real like reunion kind of thing. If you're a big Teddy Bomb fan. Yeah. And you want to see like how we react to a film that seemingly has scenes that were ripped from our movie, but I'm sure he hasn't seen Teddy Bomb because nobody has. <laughs> then <laughs> I've uh, seen you should listen to this podcast. And those little like film-focused uh, podcasts are called Post Film. They disappear as we add them. So they'll only ever be four up. And when we add a new one, the oldest one gets pulled down. Like a shooting star. Yeah, so you need to be a Patreon subscriber and get in on that. Uh, so what are we doing next week, Will? Rudy Ray Moore. Uh, soon to be the subject of a biopic starring Eddie Murphy. Did you see the cast of it? It's insane. It's like Eddie Murphy, Wesley Snipes. Mm -hmm. Like this movie, I think it's going to take a lot of people by surprise because they just don't know who Rudy Ray Moore is. Dolomite is his name yes. and fucking up motherfuckers is his game. <laughs> and that's what the name of the movie is. Dolomite is his name or is my name. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we're going to be watching, I guess, uh, Dolomite, uh, The Human Tornado, uh, I don't know what, Petey Wheatstraw? Yeah, and Disco Godfather. Those are like the four key films mm -hmm. of Rudy Ray Moore's career. These like hyper energetic, uh, very low budget black exploitation films that almost define the genre in a way that like I think people don't realize that like it's all taken from that that like stuff like Black Dynamite is just a parody of Dolomite even though that like Dolomite is almost a parody of black exploitation films at right. that point so I'm really looking forward to that episode and as again you can send us letters at Point Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com you can follow me on Twitter at DeClueJ D-E-C-L-O-U-X and the letter J Letterbox Justin DeClue I'm on Twitter at Will Sloan ESQ and make sure to visit FilmTrap.com because we do post like extended stuff uh, related to the episodes and other movie stuff written by me and a bunch of other people so until next week my name is Justin DeClue I'm Will Sloan thanks for listening I got really excited when on Facebook I saw that there was a new issue number nine of lunch meat that just got released Will what is lunch meat magazine Lunch Meat is probably my favorite movie zine. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's fair it's to a call magazine. it a zine. It's a magazine, though. Like, look at it. I don't know. You what know, makes a zine or a magazine? Um, as the Supreme Court says, I know it when I see it. Because it has that, it's that DIY ethos. Uh, you know? I know, but like, once when I wrote an essay on Jackie Chan, and this will haunt me forever, the TA wrote, this would be good in a fanzine, but it's Ouch. not an academic paper. 
And like since then, I've had a kind of like hate for anyone who uses the word zine dismissively. I don't use. I know it you don't use zine dismissively, but I, I love zines and zine culture and everything about them. But like lunch meat is pretty slick, and I love the way that it's designed, which is like very busy and like there's just so much detail to the pages. But we should actually mention what lunch meat is about. Lunch meat is about VHS and VHS culture. There's mm-hmm. a whole section at the front. I'm flipping through it right now. A whole section where they review movies that were only ever released on VHS and then never in any other format. So uh, here's a movie called The Life and Times of the Chocolate Killer. Another one called Down Twisted. Directed by, by Albert Pugh. I've seen it. Yeah. Your man. Uh, yeah. Inside Out featuring, among other directors, Lizzie Borden. Mm-hmm. Warriors of the Apocalypse. You know, in fact, I once wrote for an issue of Lunch Meat. Did you? Which one? I can't remember. It was it was a couple issues ago. I did a review of a, of a movie called Little Ninja Heroes, which is actually a retitled, I don't know if it was a Taiwanese movie. But yeah, yes, yes. They do some, like I've been looking at the, because now I have a kid series at the Royal and I've been trying to find like the perfect one. They're like gold ninja kids and stuff like that. Or seven L- lucky Little ninja, ninja heroes. When I forget what the original movie was called, but it, the VHS had a, picture of just like a white kid in a yeah. karate g-, g on oh the it's like three little ninjas it is so violent yes like, i know like, all these movies are so violent. so many kids get just brutally massacred it's probably like i mean godfrey ho did a whole bunch of them as well yeah and they were released often under titles like young shaolin and stuff like that mm-hmm. but i think that like what's amazing about lunch meat is while there is this emphasis on vhs like ah oh, analog and tape and all that stuff what it represents is the movies nobody talks about. Hmm. Because what VHS exists as now is a format that is forgotten and that has kind of gone away. So if films haven't made that transition to the point that they could just disappear and never be seen again. Hmm. So that a magazine like Lunch Meat just highlights these things. And I mean, like, VHS also represents, like, shot-on-video directors, this whole other wave of filmmakers who could just pick up a camera and deliver their vision pure on screen. Like, that's what's amazing about it. Like, I flipped through Lunch Meat, and it's like shock cinema, where I'm like, I've never heard of any of these movies. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's amazing about it. Yeah. And, like, this issue, number nine, I would highly recommend giving it, because they go out of print and you can't buy them anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, I have issue nine, eight, seven, and I don't have any of the other ones because they don't sell them on the store anymore. I have a lo- some of the early ones because Suspect, Suspect Video. Video had yeah. it. Yeah, that's where yeah. I bought them from. So, I would highly recommend going uh, at Lunch Meat website and just ordering the new issue. You will not regret it. I can promise you this. There's a section on collectibles that were released to video stores when they came out. Yeah, like Larry Cohen's The Stuff. Mm-hmm. Like a, a little package of The Stuff. Or Big Trouble in Little China came in a takeout container with the name of the video store on the side. There's a section of, you know, animated movies that time forgot, which mm-hmm. are, you know, movies that I guarantee you haven't heard of. And there's also some amazing interviews with like video auteurs, including um, one by a guy that I actually knew David Heavner who made these like revenge action sci-fi films that he star wrote and directed but he was also very religious <laughs> so it has like that weird angle on it yeah. and he has an amazing end interview here where he goes anything else you want to shout out to all the video vores and lunch meat land David 
I, I guess when you talk about zine, it's like the language That's that the it. editor yes. John Schaefer has, which mm-hmm. is a very like slang riddled, like you're my friend, famous monsters of film land style stuff. Yes. And the guy goes, you don't give up on humanity. I pray that one day they will all come back to VHS land. Then our children will have a fighting chance against the evils of darkness and moral degradation. There's only two uh, things that can save us. Praying and hoping some politician runs on an I love VHS ticket. God bless you and all the fans. I don't know about the moral degradation I, one. I agree. Of those two prescriptions he gives at the end, I agree on one of them. <laughs> yes, that's right. So um, I hope that everybody listening to this checks it out. And somehow... This was not brought to you by Lunch Me Magazine. This is purely from a passionate place.